If what you need to say can be said in six words, then say it in six words. Don't try to be too verbose and, and polish it with a bunch of additional, to your point, disruptive technology. Like, oh, this technology is gonna revolutionize. Let time tell if it will revolutionize or not. Let's just say what it will do. This technology will let you, you know, penetrate up to 30 centimeters deeper than the competitors. Okay, now you're technical, you're specific. And in the minds of our customers, like 30 centimeters today, they can only do 10, that's disruptive. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Danny, the Rev, back at you for another episode of Reveal. Coming to you with a refreshingly new take on a business unit we ordinarily don't have in the Gong Studios. Today, the Vice President of Marketing and Customer Insights from Albertsons. Yes, that grocery store, not a Kroger, not a Safeway, but an Albertsons. Yes. Francisco is coming to you today, talking a little bit about how can we break the impasse, the deadlock, the absolute consternation that exists across the aisles between sales and marketing. Well, Fran from San Francisco, yes, Francisco cut his teeth at Siemens, a traditionally B2B organization before pivoting to Uber, which was somewhat of a hybrid between B2C and B2B, to now being entirely at a B2C organization like a grocery store. He's going to tell us a little bit about how both sides can look at one another from a place of curiosity as opposed to animosity. And along the way, he's going to explain what has been the secret to his success in marketing both internally as well as externally. For a guy that does not suffer fools gladly and certainly will not allow himself to produce marketing programs that suck, you got to tune in right now to hear the man with the plan, Fran. DJ, spin that. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Gong Studios. Another episode, your weekly dose of reveal. Danny Wasserman here, the Rev, the Wasp Boss Sauce. Yep. Joined today to unpack with someone authoritative in the world of marketing. Joined today by someone whose name is also happens to be the namesake of the city he resides in. Joined by someone who has had over a decade of B2B, you ready for this? Marketing experience at that monolith from across the pond in Germany, Siemens, where I'm actually calling in from as we speak. We have someone who has spent that much time mastering the art, the craft, the science of marketing to then apply it for almost three years at Uber, a pivot from B2B marketing over to something generally B2C with some B2B aspects, who is most recently taking the helm as the VP of marketing and customer growth at any guesses, what would be the logical path? I'm guessing you aren't going to land on Albertsons, the grocery store. We have Francisco Bram, who resides in San Francisco. Francisco, welcome to the Gong Studios. Thanks for having me, Danny. It's a pleasure. Well, Francisco, as I alluded to before, you have a wealth of experience leading marketing teams. And we have a wealth of listeners who come from marketing, listening to the podcast. We also have a wealth of listeners from sales. And I think if we were to poll a lot of them, more would say than not that there is a tendency to point fingers across the aisle at the other side. Sales is claiming marketing. 
what the hell did you just produce? Marketing is pointing their fingers in sales, saying, you egomaniacs, you don't ever follow through on the leads or the ass or the campaigns or the amazingly brilliant stuff we build for you. So we have this incredibly tenuous relationship, and yet it's abundantly clear to me, Francisco, you've defied the odds. You've risen above those temptations to devolve into this antagonistic bickering tendency. And what I'd love to start with is, is that dynamic actually pervasive across most organizations? And in spite of it typically happening, what have you done to rise above it? That's a great question. And I, I would say it's definitely prevalent in organizations that are not operating efficiently. Okay. For example, um, when I joined Siemens, um, it was pretty clear that the marketing team uh, was blaming left and right the sales team for yeah. always going for price and as a result, impacting profitability because you're going for the lowest possible cost instead of selling on value. On the other hand, sales was pointing fingers at marketing for not understanding the customer and creating very fancy documents that were unusable in the day-to-day -day yeah. routine of, of sales. From my experience, this is not unique. Uh, I've okay. seen this at Uber. Uber has a strong B2B organization as well. Okay. Um, and even at Albertsons, where we're building a B2B business, we already see some of these friction points start. And for me, it's always based on four key elements. Different objectives and metrics. Uh, I think they, Marketing operates on, for example, brand awareness, lead generation, engagement with content, while sales is focusing on, you know, closing leads and in in closing opportunities. Um, so I think this misalignment at times leads to, of course, conflicts because one is more short term, one is more long term. Mm. Um, then there's communication gaps. Um, I I'm a ton at the the amount of times when I met with teams and. The sales organization had no idea what marketing was working on and marketing had no idea of upcoming major tender deals that were coming up that require a lot of marketing support and a lot of research and insights. Um, and it's because they don't see each other as partners. So they, for example, marketing would not share what's coming in the pipeline because, and I quote, they will spill the beans. The sales team will spill the beans. Well, if you are a salesperson, the last thing you want to do is sell something that it's not there yet at the cost of you know, losing that relationship with the customer because you're overselling. Any good salesperson doesn't oversell. So then the sales team doesn't want to necessarily communicate upcoming deals because they feel like marketing is just going to come in and try to sell something that it's not what they've been packaging for the last three or four months. So I think this lack of communication and transparency also leads to conflicts. Um, and then the last thing is just, I think um, in general, they don't see each other uh, for example, I consider customers the end user, and I consider sales my client. Mm. If I'm in marketing, I'm a service function, and I need to service my clients, and my clients is sales in order to get more customers. I think most marketers don't see sales teams as clients. Um, and if you are serving them as clients, you want to understand their needs, their wants. You want to walk the walk. You want a sales shadow. You want to see what they're experiencing every day and then come back with solutions. And then on the other hand, sales teams don't look at marketing as a partner or as a resource. Um, they look at it as corporate top-down mandates. Um, and, and I think when you start to break these uh, misconceptions and building bridges, that's when you have a really strong uh, partnership and you can see the results very quickly. You said something that I've never heard and I don't want to glaze over it. I actually want to double click into it. Sales 
is your client and the customer mm -hmm. is the end user. So talk us through, if that's the case, is there a sequencing? Is there a pecking order? Does one group supersede the other? Tell us more. Yeah, ultimately, the customer supersedes everyone. Um, I think any organization to be successful has to be customer obsessed um, and customer centric. Um, however, in order for an organization to be successful, especially in B2B, you have to rely on strong relationship building capabilities. And that's through sales. And sales, um, they have a lot of going on. They have a lot of, you know, leads to follow through and follow up on. Um, as a marketer, you're building a service, right? You're building a service. If it's self-serve, you're directly building that service to customers, which is awareness, education, and hopefully conversion. Um, but if it's direct sales, then your service is to the sales team. And so here's the thing that I found, an example. I came to Siemens, one of the divisions, and um, I was going through uh, the materials that they put together. Uh, let me look at your sales deck pitches. And they were beautifully designed. That the design was outstanding, creative was beautiful, the tagline sounds sexy and fun, and they even had a lot of insights, which is really good, like a lot of data points. Yeah. And then um, I said, why isn't the sales team using it? I was like, well, because they don't understand, because they don't get it. They, they don't have the capacity to, to try to adopt new narratives. Yeah. Like, okay, understood. Let me take some time and, and shadow the sales team. And so I went and spent a whole month every week with a different zone sales manager across the US. And it was pretty obvious to me why they don't use it because they have absolutely no time to use it. Uh, I spent the time a whole week, they were going, they're driving from hospital to hospital to talk to doctors or doc, talk to chief operating officers. And their preparation or planning for those meetings was either done, um, you know, in the car with their partner or it was done before they left the car. They had no time to go and open a presentation and look through the slides. In fact, this idea that they actually sit in front of customers and present slides is so outdated because customers themselves don't have time. So it's a conversation they normally have. And so that sparked an idea. Why not build, for example, an Alexa skill? And this was the first time we actually did it. So at Siemens, we built this Alexa skill. I've never done it at Siemens before. And the Alexa skill is very simple. You can use it on your phone if you download the Alexa app, or you, we actually gave every salesperson an Echo Dot. Wow. And they can plug it into their car. And through their phone, they can create a hotspot, and then they can have Wi-Fi. And essentially, the Alexa skill is very simple. Hey, Alexa, tell me how to pitch this product in five minutes to a chief financial officer. And then the next call was, oh, hey, Alexa, tell me how to pitch this product in 15 minutes to the chief marketing officer or chief medical officer. And Alexa will just go through the entire spiel. You can also ask, um, how are we better than competitor X or Y and Z, like than GE or Philips? And Alexa will tell you all those very sort of condensed selling points. And this was a hit. Not only did they use it a ton, but they came back and constantly sort of, um, you know, commendated the, the, the efforts that the marketing team did. And this was based on a simple spark that I had when doing sales shadow. So to me, it's really important that at times we don't blame the other side before walking on their shoes. There's this line that a good friend of mine who is a mental health therapist, she talks about when there's misunderstanding between two people. It's easy to get furious at the other side. And the line she uses is, 
let's get curious, not furious. And you, you know, thinking about, okay, like, let's meet them where they're at. If they're in the cars, these beautiful, absolutely flawlessly designed decks are not something that they can flip through. They're not thumbing through the color palettes that you've chosen or those incredibly detailed granular insights because they have to make it to the meeting. That's the last thing they're thinking about. So really creative breakthrough. I want to ask this question. So if the seller is your client and you need to meet them where they're at and they can sort of dictate the form factor, whether it's an Alexa app or a deck that you're using, where does the buck stop? And, And maybe that's the wrong question, but I'm curious between sales and marketing, if you're having to sort of go to them, and I don't know if the word is placate, but certainly tailor your artifacts to them, does the buck stop with them? Does the buck stop with you because you create it? Or is that the wrong question that we should be asking? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I think you you can't, of course, just um, be a service function in the sense that you do whatever they ask you to do. That's why I said the customer, the customer, the end user is at the core of all marketing. And so if there's misalignment between what sales is asking and what customer wants or needs, then you prioritize the customer and you have to push back and, and you, you have to convey that in a very articulate way to the sales team. Um, but you, at the end of the day, um, who's your first voice of customer internally? That's your sales team. Those, those are the ones who are frequently talking to customers. So if you have a constant feedback loop with those teams, you build trust, you build credibility, you'll learn very quickly who's good and who's not good and who to listen to and who not to listen to. Um, there are a lot of salespeople who will complain left and right. And at times is more of a um, self-reflection on the low performance they're having. They're just needing to find someone else to blame. But you'll very quickly identify those top sales performers. And those are your best friends. Um, those are the ones you want to shadow. Those are the ones you want to have as part of your, what I call like to core, like to call the uh, tiger team. Yeah. So it's part of that core team where you meet every month and you discuss upcoming deals. You present to them work that you're working on. Here's another example. This is another crazy story. And it was very last minute that we saved this. The marketing team did a phenomenal job at talking to a lot of customers and talking to researchers and identifying a particular problem in the market that a medical device they're about to launch could solve. So the problem was 12 million people are misdiagnosed each year. Means that you're, you know, 12 million people, that's more than the entire population of my home country, Portugal. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're likely to leave the hospital with a wrong diagnosis. Wow. And they thought, okay, we have this device which offers greater image quality, allows you to penetrate very deep into the tissue and anatomy, um, like no other device could do it at the time. This was truly a revolutionary device. And they said, we're going to end misdiagnoses, or we're going to go and promote this device as the, um, the solution for misdiagnoses. And we have the data. Here's the stats. Here's the publications, scientific publications that truly demonstrate that the device can help with misdiagnoses. Yeah. And that there are, in fact, millions and millions of people who misdiagnose each year. So the story was very compelling. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really powerful. I mean, who would not want to partner with us knowing the story? And then I asked, what does the sales team has to say about it? Like, well, we haven't checked with the sales team. And to me, that was mind-blowing. Like, you, you haven't checked with them? No, because it's still three months out. We don't want to spill the beans. We don't want them to go and start pre-selling. Um, because we're not ready. We don't know if in three months, you might not even be ready to the product and now they're pre-selling. It's like, okay, yeah, but you want to get their feedback on your storyline. 
because they know how customers talk and think. So I took that story and I met with his own business managers and none of them liked that story. They all thought it was terrible. And their reason was very valid, which was, I'm not going to go in front of a customer and tell him that he's probably misdiagnosing his patients because no doctor is ever going to admit that they're misdiagnosing his patients, even though they will admit the technology is flawed, but they will never admit that I've done it because they would put themselves out for liability. Yeah, for sure. Malpractice. Of course, that makes absolute sense. We went and confirmed with a few doctors that story and they all came back and said, no, we, I agree that this is not a great story to tell. Yes, unfortunately, there are misdiagnoses, um, but you will not get a lot of evangelists if, you, if this is the story you're going to go with. So we ended up completely repivoting the story. Again, three months before the launch, we have to redesign all marketing assets. And again, it came down to why haven't you talked to the sales team? And as I was saying earlier, they are your front line. The, the, the voice of customer, that's the first person you want to talk to, to get a better understanding of how customers will react to marketing. So another good example of why it's so important that you build that trust uh, where you share, openly share um, with, with your sales force, what you're working on, what's coming and vice versa. When you talk about the paranoia that marketing feels, they're going to spill the beans. We can't leak anything. Well, sellers, that's a very real concern. So marketers do need to trust that you're not going to be a dingus and prematurely leak something that's not ready to go. I also want to argue from the flip side, when you shared the story, hey, like we don't want to spill the beans. And then you're like, whoa, well, we have to actually pressure test this. We need to validate this with sales. They say, who came up with this? Where did this get cooked up? Having been a former seller, I've been on the receiving end of marketing collateral. And with the utmost respect for the work that marketers do, I've been in more rooms than I'd care to admit, Francisco, where oftentimes the underlying sentiment from sales is, this reeks of marketing. This is never how we would pitch this or articulate this. I don't know if that's something that you've experienced. If it has been something you've heard or experienced, how do we overcome the disconnect in the language that is used on the front lines versus the language that is cooked up in the lab? Wonderful question. And yes, that happens very much um, all the time, especially with marketers who come from pure marketing backgrounds. Okay. Marketers who come from pure marketing backgrounds have a lot of theory and are very polished in their writing. Um, but it doesn't come across as conversational and authentic and, and, and real, real conversation. Um, and so one of the things that I do in every team that I establish is we have to define our tone of voice. And that tone of voice is built together with customers and sales. And you pick yes. specific words that you know you can use and words that you avoid at all costs. For example, you don't want to use very polished words like um, we're going to drive success and help you prosper. Like nobody talks like that. It feels like you're giving a speech in front of, I don't know, like a battalion ready to go to war. Um, yeah. When you talk to a doctor, you're very down to earth and you, you use a language that you would use as if you're in a restaurant or a bar. Um, now that language needs to have credibility. You can't just throw in words um, without having a good understanding of, um, you know, the, the, the technology, the challenges, the needs and wants, the, the patient or customer journey. You need to understand all of that. But you're, you, you can't make slides look like they're built for an academic presentation um, because salespeople will never relate to it and they will more likely than not uh, reject that presentation and make their own slides. And then marketers complain, look at all these different slides that are out there 
and, and, and they're using different languages and they're, they're making claims that we can even substantiate that legal didn't even approve. But that's because you made it hard for them to actually use what you created. So there, it goes both ways, of course. It's also important that sales is very transparent um, to, with, with, with marketing and tells them exactly the challenges they're facing. Because at times, um, the easiest example that I can think of, it's always price. Oh, our competitors are cheaper. And then we run a study like the lost order reason. Why did we lose the order? We go back to all the customers where we lost orders and try to learn why we lost the order. And more often than not, it's not related to price. Um, and so there is a lack of trust, like sales is not telling us the whole picture. And yeah. I think it, it's important that they tell us so that we can help them. And I think that trust needs to be built. Um, but it's a beautiful thing when there's trust. I can tell you, like we have salespeople come to us and say, hey, I know we're four months out of this new product introduction, but we have this major deal, 500 units, and we're likely going to lo lose to GE or Philips. But if we can pitch in what's already coming, it will show them that we are ahead of cutting edge technology. And they will believe that they are, because, you know, I always say B2B sales is like buying a house, right? It's a long-term commitment. You look at the land, you look at the infrastructure, you look at the, the schools, you look at the valuation of the property over time versus B2C, which is mostly just buying a car, which is emotionally driven. Uh, you go in, you test drive it, you love it, you go with it. So when somebody's making a purchase for 500 units, you're making a long-term commitment with you. And I think I love it when sales comes and tells us exactly what's going on and what's, ha what's happening. And then we go in and we put together materials that elude and tease what's coming. And at times even reveal what's coming under NDA um, to, to, to our customers. And he helps win. And, and there's this beautiful partnership. Like they bring us along into their sales pitches and, and we sit there as key experts in case a question comes up about the future tech. So I want to bridge the two concepts I heard that were really uniquely Francisco. The first was this idea that language that comes from folks who have been trained conventionally in the theory of marketing can oftentimes feel stodgy it can feel almost like oh just it reeks of marketing and i i think about someone like corporate bro on instagram who has satirized a lot of sort of what marketing does and i, I mean that just purely as a nod to corporate bro not that i'm knocking or throwing shade at marketing but the words that come to mind are optimize synergy uh platform transformative so i hear those words and then I would also say you raise something really interesting, which is that you also don't want to marginalize the sophistication and the capabilities of your platform. In the same way, now I'm connecting the second concept, which is that a B2B sale is like buying a home where you want to be really thorough. You want to examine what is the foundation of the house, what is the surrounding neighborhood, the school districts, et cetera. And no one wants to buy something that's painfully basic or ill-equipped. How do you reconcile, don't sound so optimize, supercharge, platform transformation, also with such basic language that you undercut yourself. What's the balancing act there, Francisco? Yeah, first off, delete, delete, delete. That's what I always say. <laughs> yeah. And if, if, if what you need to say can be said in six words, then say it in six words. Don't try to be too verbose and, and polish it with a bunch of additional, to your point, disruptive technology. No, there you go. just say new technology like oh this technology is going to revolutionize let let the, let time 
tell if it will revolutionize or not. Let's just say what it will do. This technology will let you, you know, penetrate up to 30 centimeters deeper than the competitors. Okay, now you're technical, you're specific. Yes. And in the minds of our customers, like 30 centimeters today, they can only do 10. That's disruptive. That's revolutionary. But we're not the ones saying it. It doesn't feel like we are, um, you know, we're almost like top down talking to customers, right? We're coming from this corporate world with a suit and tie and, and just bringing in all these fancy words. I think make it colloquial. Um, but at, at the same point, and make sure that what you're saying is validated, it's proven, is, is, is backed by data. That's the most important thing that I found, is never come prepared with statements where you cannot back it by data. What's okay. your proof point? So if you come in and say, um, we can penetrate up to 30% deeper than our direct competitors. Okay, so how much can, can you penetrate and how much can your competitors penetrate? Be ready to have those, those numbers top of mind, not just make claims, marketing claims. Um, I think that's that's really important. Like, delete, delete, delete. Know what you need to say and say it in the least amount of words possible. Um, and if you do that, if you play that that deletion game, you'll find that um, you can your words um, are simple and to the point. And that's what customers relate to. Um, because think about your your target audience, how they talk as well. We're talking to doctors, and doctors the when they talk to patients, they're not saying. Oh, my therapy is going to revolutionize your life. My therapy or this particular medication is disruptive. And it's disru they don't talk like that to patients. They talk very down to earth, very empathetic, simple language. Yeah. Um, but they're very sophisticated people. So you want to use simple language and add sophistication to complement your language. That means the sophistication comes from data, comes from proof points, comes from validation of the work that you're delivering. Um, that's it, it, It's hard work. Um, it's easy to actually go in and write really beautiful statements, like mission statement type of marketing claims. That's really easy. Um, and it's really hard to make it down to earth, empathetic and, and, and trustworthy. Ever wondered how sales and marketing go hand in hand? In the world of business, it's all about synergy. When sales and marketing teams join forces, magic happens. Sales relies on marketing to create buzz, generate leads and build brand awareness. And marketing, well, they thrive when sales provides real-world insights, feedback, and customer stories. Do you know that a study from HubSpot found that companies with aligned sales and marketing teams, well, that synergy helps them achieve 24% faster three-year revenue growth and 27% faster three-year profit growth than companies which are misaligned. Yes, it is this alignment of the two essential functions which can lead to quicker revenue and profitability proving that there is a clear incentive for these two organizations to be simpatico. So as a takeaway from HubSpot and from Fran, prioritize and invest in tighter coordination and alignment between sales and marketing. Back to Fran to hear some more. So we've talked about some of your big wins at Siemens. The Alexa idea, absolutely brilliant. The idea of actually forcing the team who was trying to withhold to then pressure test with the sales teams before you rolled out. Fantastic ways to bridge those gaps. That was the B2B playbook. You then went on after a decade at Siemens to Uber. More obviously B2C than Siemens with some B2B. I'm curious if you look at that chapter and then even from Uber to Albertsons, even more B2C, 
What are the lessons that transcend the arenas of B2B and B2C that remain ever present and eternally true? Yeah, that's a great question. That's the uh, age old question, B2B versus B2C. Um, Which is tougher, which is um, most impactful? I think they're both very different disciplines and they started off very, very divergent and they're not becoming very, very, very much the same. And I think it's because of tech. Um, I'll start with the challenges of B2B. When you're a marketer and marketing for B2B, you have very long sales cycles. And a marketer likes to know directly when their work is directly impacting revenue and sales. And when there's long sales cycles, it's very hard to know when you actually drove or what was your impact? What is your multi-touch attribution, right? Um, Because in that process of, let's say, six months, there's a lot of stakeholders involved. There's a lot of touch points involved with the customer. And some of them were sales, some of them were marketing. And so it's hard for you to actually directly attribute your impact to work. So that's one of the challenges. Um, then in B2B, as we were talking before, a lot of the, the messaging, it's more logical. It's more monetary driven. And it requires detailed explanations. And at times, not very creative and not very emotional. Just straight matter to, to the, straight to the point, matter of fact. Um, then the last one is um, in B2B, you're dealing with probably five or six different personas. So it's never just as simple as creating a nice sales presentation, targeting the, I'll give you an example at Siemens, the sales team was targeting the person who were, was using the images from the medical devices, let's say the MRI machine, uh, that is the physician. But then they also needed to talk to the person actually doing the scanning. That's called a technologist. But they also needed to talk to the person who actually will operate the system, the physicist. And they need to talk to the actual chief medical officer who makes the decisions about um, what medical devices the the hospital needs. So they had like four to to five different decision makers. That makes it really complicated um, because it's not easy to do research with these stakeholders. They don't have time to talk to you. And if they do have time, you're looking at a $500 an hour, uh, at least, um, f- to talk to them. So like, it's very expensive to run research in B2B. Those are the challenges. Um, the pros is B2B um, has a lot more capabilities that allow you to measure marketing um, from you know, your typical online engagement to funnels. So you can actually see the leads coming into the funnel and where those leads initiated. Oh, they initiated in this, in this sign-up form. This sign-up form is on the website. Where did the person land from? Well, they land from a Facebook ad. Okay, and then you can follow that funnel all the way through. Is that lead a qualified lead? Is that qualification then pushed through a demo? Was the demo then converted into an opportunity? And, and so on and so forth. And then you can actually see the impact of that lead if it's converted into sales. So that's a beautiful thing. Like in, in direct-to-consumer, um, at times you see a, an influx of customers coming in buying products from you, um, but you don't necessarily know if they were touched by you or if they just ended up just coming, walking through the store and finding the product. Um, you have to do a lot of more uh, data analyses to actually follow the lead. You can do it, but it requires a lot of data privacy um, assertions. So that's, that's one of the challenges of, of, of uh, one of the pros of B2B. So what I brought to Uber um, is... A few things. Number one, the ability to use data to validate your marketing. So Uber marketing was very emotional and it was very creative. Um, but at times, um, 
you know, it just felt like that message could be played on, on the left side or could be played on a DoorDash side and it would, it would just sound the same. So how do we use the rich amount of data we have at Uber to make it even more compelling and more exciting? Then personalization. Because you're dealing with six different personas in B2B, you now have that mindset that your marketing is not one size fits all. So when you come to the direct to consumer, you already assume that there's multiple personas as well. So you're going to go into research and identify what those personas are and build marketing materials for those different personas. So I was able to bring that with me. Then I was also able to bring is um, the ability to double click on, um, on trends. So one, one of the things we do in B2B really well is we look at market trends by buying market reports. We look at those reports. We, those reports have a lot of uh, data from, uh, from companies we serve. And we have contact lists and, and emails that we can then target and service. And so I was able to bring some of that concept as well and say, hey, if we want to market this new service from Uber to consumers that we haven't served before, um, where are they frequently shopping? Um, can we maybe acquire some of those lists, contact lists, and, and then target them directly as well? Um, so these are some of the things I think B2B has that is really strong that you can bring with you. Um, but yeah, it, I love both. I think both B2B and B2C. Um, in fact, there's the new term called B2B2C, uh, which is, uh, yeah. for example, a lot of what I used to do at Uber, which yeah. is we want to market to companies to use Uber as their preferred method for transportation. And at the same time, we want to then promote these services to the riders themselves so that they can use the service. So it's not enough to sign up, let's say, McKinsey as a client. We want to then make sure we also are marketing to the McKinsey consultants to use this. So it's more and more, and at Albertsons, we're doing the same. How do we build a B2B2C platform where we go to companies that want to cater food for their offices and then market to their consumers that the Albertsons is a destination for all things food? Um, so this plan is beautiful because you, you use the best of both worlds. I just think in the time that we've spent together, Francisco, it's been you bridging these voids, these rifts, these gaps, right? When we start talking about B2B versus B2C and there's this standoff, which is harder, which is better, which is more creative. And you're like, doesn't have to be binary. Doesn't have to be an right. us versus them. Let's just come together and use both in the same way you talked about. It's not marketing versus sales or sales versus marketing. It's we need to trust one another. And I think it's in looking for those creative option C's that you've achieved an absolutely illustrious track record of success. So just, again, not meant to be patronizing, but I just commend you for always seeing that there is more than just a binary one or the other outcome. That's fantastic. Well, I so agree. And that just reminds me, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. Um, everyone that I talk to, that they, they say the same thing, which is, oh, well, in B2B, our messaging needs to be more um, logical, more monetary yeah. driven. And it's like, yes, but you also need some emotion. It's like, no, not in B2B. Like, well, but the, the person you're going to talk to is the same human that you talk to on the consumer side. And if that human reacts emotionally on the consumer side, it doesn't mean that it won't react emotionally as well on the, on the B2B side. I agree because of the time uh, that it takes to, to, to sign a deal in B2B, you need to supplement that emotion with a lot of uh, data that sort of shows them the return on investment, that shows um, how you will solve and address their pain points. Um, but if your message doesn't have any emotion, it will fall flat. And 
So I always tell people like, yeah, be as creative and emotional as you can be in your B2B messaging uh, and supplement that with data. And then you'll find that it's more compelling that way than just standard, here's what the product can do and here's the validation that we have. So you've been in this marketing journey for over about 15 years. And I'm curious, if you look back in the rearview mirror with all the wealth of experience you've had from Siemens to Uber, now Albertsons, what would Francisco of today tell Francisco who was just starting to cut his teeth at Siemens 15 years ago? Wow. Well, first off, personally, I would say, don't worry about success. Just um, do what's best for the customer and success will follow. Um, at times when we're young and in our early in our career, all we think about is how I can succeed and how I can demonstrate that I add value to the organization. So if I could go back and remove that anxiety, don't worry about this. Just focus on building great, great solutions, helping product build great products that will impact customers' lives and successful follow, without a doubt. And uh, another thing that I would say is um, spend time building relationships. Um, I, I think I think in the area of technology today, those are understated. Uh, but I found that when you build relationships with customers, with sales, with your peers, um, they carry through life and you learn a ton. And today, some of the people that I still talk to are people that work at Siemens. Um, and we still connect very frequently. Um, and I, I learned and I still learn from them. Uh, so spend time building relationships, not just focusing too much in your career. From a marketing perspective, I would say, don't be afraid to fail. That's what I would tell Francisco. Don't be afraid to fail. Just really be disruptive. Just really be, think differently and push the boundaries. Uh, what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is, um, you know, you, your marketing fails um, and you may end up realizing that it's not, um, you know, it's not the, the potential role for you and you find some, some other role. But I would say the lack of risk, um, the lack of embracing risk uh, was something that helped me back in the early days of my career. Today, I am a lot more bold in risks I take up with marketing. Um, and we do a lot more. And it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun. Like just the last year at Siemens, what we did there um, was something that in my first two, three years, I never would have imagined that I could do. And it was all because I felt more confident taking risks. Cool. Well, I'm keeping an eye on the clock. And it is advice you'd give yourself of 15 years in the past, but that advice holds true for so many of our listeners, both the marketers as well as the sellers and the enablers who tune in every week of the 33,000 unique monthly listeners. So thanks so much, Francisco, for being so honest and supportive of people who are at various stages of their career. If you've listened to Reveal, you know that we always save the best for last. Yes, it's the same question, Francisco, that we ask every single one of our guests since the podcast inception, which is this. If you could describe In your case, I'm going to give you a twofer, but we'll go with the conventional classic first. If you could describe sales in one word, what one word would it be? And because of your background as a marketer, I also want to know if you could describe marketing in one word, what would it be? Marketing, I would say it's like alchemy. Mm. Alchemy, which is you have all these different elements and you have to make magic out of them. Uh, you have customer feedback, you have product, you have sales, you have legal, regulatory, and all these different distinct elements. How do you combine them to produce something that is truly magical? So that would be my word for, for marketing, alchemy. 
uh, for sales, um, I would say, it, I don't know, it's boring, but it's the word that always comes to mind, which is when I think of sales, I think of growth. Hmm. And that, that to me is sales is such a growth lever. Um, they're truly the, the, the engine of an organization. If, if the sales team is motivated and empowered and has the right tools, um, there's no limit to what the company can, can achieve. So, yeah, and I think of sales, I think of the first word that comes to mind is growth. Um, and marketing is alchemy. Amazing. Well, Francisco, I'm smiling ear to ear, just trying to make sure I've cataloged all of the Francisco-isms, the B2B equivalent to buying a home versus B2C is buying a car. I'm holding on to that one for dear life. I'm holding on to B2B to C, if I get that right. That's another one of those sort of groundbreaking, pushing the boundaries, Francisco-isms. And I just, I, I so appreciate you doing an amazing job of bridging this rift that, as you said, plagues so many organizations across sales and marketing and trying to engender trust and assuming positive intent and getting curious and not furious to overcome those, what could be toxic, if not fatal flaws in operational flow. So Francisco Bram, VP of marketing and customer growth at Albertsons. Thank you a million times over for joining us in the Gong Studios. Francisco, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, well, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. <laughs>